Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our host, Bob Cheviar. Bob is a longtime teaching pro in Westchester County, New York, and a former top 15 ranked player in the United States in the men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles in the late 1980s and early 90s. He is also the author of the path-breaking book, Deconstructing Tennis, The 4D System. The book lays out a simple and complete framework for how to use the time between points in tennis. Bob's co-host on Outside the Lines is Scott Shannon, also a teaching pro in Westchester, whose best ranking in men's open singles was number two in the East in 1980. He was also ranked number one in the East that year in doubles with Peter Bromley. Scott was also a top 10 player in the U.S. in 35 and over singles and doubles. Your hosts hope to help you get your mental approach more on target. Hi all, I'm Bob Cheviar, the host of Outside the Lines, and I'm here with my co-host, Scott Shannon. And today we're gonna be discussing as a competitive club player, how do you get the most out of your indoor season? The framework for this is pretty much that players don't play quite as much during the indoor season typically as they do during the summer when they're on multiple teams. So we're going to take more of an in-depth look of how you should use your indoor season starting now to get ready for next spring and summer when you'd like to be peaking with your tennis. But first, just a couple of housekeeping items. Um, number one, Scott, this is a little surprising to me. We had close to one hour on our last podcast regarding the summary of the U.S. Open but it is now in the lead for the most plays of any of our podcasts. So I, I was chastised by a few people for keeping them on for close to an hour. And today we're going to do much better limiting our discussion to around half an hour. But we had 71 plays on the U.S. Open, and you were just relaying to me that a couple of people you teach had tuned in and really enjoyed that podcast. So. Uh, Let's just keep going with it. Uh, the other thing I did want to mention before we get into the club player uh, discussion about how to use the indoor season, Emma Raducanu, everyone knows the current reigning U.S. Open women's champion, she just replaced her coach, the coach wh whom she got connected with again following Wimbledon and getting ready for the U.S. Open. His name was Andrew Richardson. He was a former British satellite player. And I don't know, Scott, what do you think? Don't we sort of have a thing? Don't mess with success. Hey, Bob, and hi to everybody. Um, so, yes, it's very similar to what we talk about when you're in the middle of a match. And we really tell our students and our players on our teams, don't change a winning strategy. Keep doing the same thing until it becomes a losing strategy. This whole thing with Radha Kanu just smacks of changing a winning strategy. 
we don't have like all the details behind what the decision was based on. I don't even know if we have any of the details per se, but it just seems very strange that her quick ascension would precipitate this huge change in her team. Yeah, I think she did say, Scott, that she wanted a coach who had more experience dealing with the top levels of WTA tennis. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. I'm, I'm a little skeptical of switching coaches after all the big success, but let's just wait and see what happens. It actually makes it to me even more interesting to see how she's going to do an Indian Wells in, in, I think it's next week or the week after. And we should look at the Osaka's example of when she was winning and then she changed coaches, correct? Yeah. I mean, she did come back then to, she changed coaches and subsequently came back to win, but she did have a little bit of a slump after that uh, short in the short run after that coaching switch. So getting the most out of the indoor season, I'd like to just tell a short story about my own tennis development. I think it sort of sets the tone for what we're going to be talking about today. Way back, I can actually still remember this. I was a junior in high school and I was a pretty good player. One of the better high school players in New Jersey and our opening match of the season we played against the team who ended up having the New Jersey State High School champion playing line one for them. And he beat me six, four in the third. And then it just so happened the last match of the season, we played again because we were rivals and we played twice in one season. And he beat me six, love, six, one. So that loss forced me to take a long, hard look at how my own tennis was developing. I, I should mention when I'm telling the story, I didn't have a coach. I was observing myself and I was coaching myself and trying to fix and improve myself as I went. And what I decided at that point was my game wasn't aggressive enough and I was going to spend the indoor winter season learning how to serve in volley. And I did it playing with a couple of guys on my team. We played doubles just once a week, but that was actually a good way to learn serve in volley because you weren't covering the whole court all at once. And to make a long story short, I, I learned it. I didn't struggle by the time I got to the season, I was pretty good at it. And I had a season where I was 27 and one and our team was New Jersey state champ and Essex County champion, as well as the Big Ten Conference. So my, my point in telling that story is I use the indoor season to make a big change in my game, and I never let up on my goal to learn a new skill. So, Scott, when you're working with students, what sort of goals are you trying to get them in touch with when maybe they want to go through a process similar to the one I just described? What I try to do when this comes up, and sometimes it doesn't come up as often as it should, I try to 
help them identify what they agree is a weakness in their game and to get out and not just go into the indoor season with, I'm going to play sets because we have limited time. So we're going to go on the court. We're going to warm up for five minutes. We're not going to warm up serves. We'll play first one in and then we'll just play. It's virtually impossible to make a change significantly in something in your game, a weakness, and do it through playing sets and just playing points and being competitive with the limited time that you have. So I tell them that they should take some time to play some drill games that allow for them to work with that area that they see needs some attention and then go to putting it into practice either later on in the session or don't even do anything during that time, wait till the next week when they play again. But I think this is a tremendous lost opportunity when people go indoors is they do not use that time in an efficient way uh, and in a uh, specific way to do something positive for their game. Yeah, so Scott, uh, the way you're speaking about it is very much the way that I look at it. For example, some students will say, my goal is next season, I'm gonna at most lose only two matches. That's my goal. And I immediately try to redirect them from a ranking uh, goal to a process goal. What pattern of play, what technique do you need to change? What shot do you need to add to take yourself up that to the next level of tennis? So the number one question players who are looking to use the indoor season should be asking themselves is not what do I want to accomplish? How do I want to get to the next place? They must answer the question, how? Yes, this is also coming back to what we may have touched on uh, in some of the past podcasts about results and process. If you are constantly just evaluating and paying attention to what the results are, then you miss what's really going to change your results, which is to work with the process, understanding and trusting that the process will give you the results that you are looking for. And I think people get out of sequence in this thinking because there's always this emphasis on results, get the results. And Bob, you and I have discussed this before, but very often people will come off the court from a match and you'll say, gee, how did the match go? And they'll just give you the score. And we say, well, that's not really what we wanted to know. We wanted to know what happened in the match. Did you make a lot of unforced errors? Did you make winners? What was the ratio? How was the first serve going? 
Did you get a lot of return of serves in play? Where did you see the match uh, pivoting in terms of the score? Were you playing the deuce points and the game points intelligently and with without errors and taking advantage of situations and playing aggressively when you had the chance, things like that. And then they would look and say, well, not really, not really sure. I don't really remember all those things. And so we have no real information about the match to help them make significant, significant changes. Yeah. So Scott, that, that relates very much to something that I think is really important. And I, I hope, uh, I don't make some other coaches look not too good by bringing this up, but I think it's crucial for a coach to see his or her student play in real matches for a couple of reasons. One is we get to assess how much nerves are a part of what a player is bringing to the match and helping a player do better with that part of the game is as important as helping them change their technique on a given shot. Uh, it also helps us to see the difference because we see players who do an extremely good job in practice of following our directions and constructing points the way we would like to see. But then we also see those same players in a match many times not sticking to the plan and getting the most out of what their potential is. So what, what's your feeling, Scott, on seeing your students play a real match? Yes, I agree that you have to be able to see enough of their competitive play in real matches, not just competitive play with their own team or people they're familiar with, because that does not bring up the nerves and does not bring up the, the necessity for looking at the opponents and finding out what they do well and what they don't do well, because you're not that familiar with them. But I, I think that it's amazing how sometimes players are just so resistant when they get into a match to do anything that's outside their comfort zone. For instance, I told a student recently in a singles match, I was able to coach on the changeovers and I said to the student, I will tell you right now what you can do to win this match give yourself the best chance to win this match. And it was very funny because it was very much the whole dynamic that occurred between Medvedev and Djokovic at the finals of the Open. I said, every time you extend the point past four shots, you are winning at least half of the points and maybe more. If you don't go past the four, you're either imploding and hitting the ball like so hard or so close to the line that you miss that you're determining who's winning and who's losing the point there because you are making the error because you're overplaying. And sure enough, this person went back on the court and didn't do what I said for them to do at all because they were just so pumped up and, and, and hyper 
and just stayed with what they normally do because I think that the brain stops working for some players because they don't calm down, they don't take time to think. And here they have a coach who's been a coach for 47 years and they won't even try to implement something that I said that would basically give them a tremendous chance to win the match. So there it is in a nutshell for me, Bob. Yeah, I I agree. Getting getting your student to listen. I th I think there's one other element that comes into play though, when you or I rel rely on the student to self-report what happened in the match. Right. I don't know how you feel, but I sometimes I ask them when I've actually seen the match. I ask my student, "Tell me what happened," so I get to see how they are seeing the world. And sometimes, I'm not going to say many, but I will say sometimes it is very far away from what was actually going on in the match. So, again, this highlights another reason why it's important to have the coach actually observe the match and give student one or two things that they could change that could get them over the top. Now, when we're, we're talking about trying to grow your ability during the indoor season, I think that there's a hierarchy of four different parts to a program. And everybody, when you're listening to this, remember there is perhaps one constraint or two. One constraint would be how much money do you have that you're going to put into lessons, drills, matches, and everything else. And the other one would be how much time you have. You could be busy with a whole host of other things uh, or away from tennis. So both of those could constrain you a bit. But in the ideal world, there should be some private lesson time to adjust your technique. There should be some drills where you're working on the patterns and shots that you want to execute within the flow of play. Then there should be, Scott, those practice sets that you mentioned. And then finally, during the indoor season, I like it when my students cut back on matches, but don't give them up altogether. For example, one match every three or four weeks is good because you can still begin to integrate the new things that you're trying to do. But at the same time, you're not suffering from match nerves because you're going out there often enough that it's not affecting you in that negative way as if you were to, let's say, take six months off and then start playing matches again. In that situation, typically it takes quite a few to calm down and get back into your match play mentality. Uh, how do you view that four-step process? This is something that I see as a huge challenge for people because they don't seem to be organized enough to put this into practice because there's pressure from a certain number of players in the group where they just want to play sets. They just, they, it's, it's not a match per se, it's, it's practice, but it's competitive, it's sets. They wanna find out if there's a loser on a given day or a winner on a given day. 
And I think that the best thing for someone going into the indoors who wants to see some significant changes is to possibly get into a program where they have clinics that are looking at certain aspects of their game and drilling them to develop the skills, then putting them into like practice sets. And then possibly if having, you know, a, a real match against another club is, is possible, that would be a great thing. I know that sometimes that's difficult to pull off in the indoor season. USTA matches seem to be filling that void to some degree because you can get some during the winter. So that's how I look at it uh, and try to encourage my students to do that. Yeah, so going back to just touching base again on self-reported matches, what I find tends to happen is that with my students, I develop with them a common vocabulary. For example, anyone who's played with me knows in any given situation, they have to know what gear they would want to be hitting the ball in, or they would want to know if they were playing properly based upon the score, like we talked in one of our earlier podcasts. What happens if, if I watch a match and then discuss what I saw using those terms, invariably my student mm -hmm. learns those terms. So when they come back and self-report to me, it becomes a more and more reliable report because we're sharing a common vocabulary that isn't just based upon winning or losing, but upon what was happening on the court and how it was happening. Yeah, I think that the importance of the accuracy of what's being reported is major. But I think that players need to do a lot of work to find out how to have a viable memory of what went on. So they have to be looking for certain kinds of things. I would say that unforced errors are the number one thing to look at. And I would say that the ratio between unforced errors and winners, probably not so important at this level, but how about percentage of first serves? And also how are you playing at deuce and on game points? Are you winning? Are you playing solid points there? Or are you getting to that point and then playing very uh, inconsistently with lots of errors and nervous or whatever? And then thus you don't get on the scoreboard with, with games scored. You just have a really good game and a close game because a lot of people, don't they, Bob, come off and say, oh, we went to deuce so many times and we had add a few times. I said, yeah, but why was the score love and one? Well, we never won those points at add. Right. So I said, well, you got to learn to like win those points. If you can win all the other points, you can win some of those points. So let's see what you're doing in those points where you don't give yourself a chance to win games. 
Because even though points win games, games win sets. Sets win matches. So let's go back and talk a little bit about the four-step process. Lessons, drills, practice sets leading to matches in order to improve a tennis player. For you, Scott, first, I, I guess I have two questions. Number one, within your drills, do you also teach some technique or do you just say it's a drill and players are going to do what they're going to do? And secondly, how important, importantly, do you value having proper technique when trying to help a student to improve? Great questions, Bob. I'll answer the second one first. I think having really solid technique doesn't have to be world-class, but it should be basically working towards what world-class players do. So they have to have an understanding of what is correct technique and keep working on it. Players, top players are working on keeping their technique sharp all the time. This is not a process that, that you come to a certain point and say, okay, I never have to really deal with this again. This thing is set in stone. The other thing is when I'm doing drills and doing some situational doubles with positioning and shot selection and tactics and things like that, I do throw in a little bit of technique critiques here and there, but nothing on a major basis because it's not going to really make much of a difference in that setting because when it comes to technique, you need to make sure that there are repetitions that are completely correct and that there's a lot of them so that you create the correct muscle memory and you can't really do that in a group setting if you are you know play having situational play if you're doing a drill and you're telling everybody we're going to work on volleys and we're going to work on the continental grip and we're going to work on the pivot and and moving the feet and you know doing a certain thing with the racket a little bit high to low and create some backspin and we're going to work towards this target then you can do that with a group and you just focus in on that. And that would be when I would use more technique uh, in the lesson than in the other situation. Yeah, so Scott, uh, we didn't discuss exactly the example you were going to bring up, but it so fits in with one of the things I wanted to mention, which is when it comes to technique for club players, and it's actually true for pros as well, there's a range through which something, let's say, like a grip is correct. And then if it gets too far one way or the other, it would actually be incorrect. So my example is of a player I had a few years ago who had more of an Eastern forehand grip on her forehand volley. But she had a game style with heavy top spin, so the opponent was often forced to just throw the ball up in the air. And she had a tremendous swing volley that she'd come in and take it out of the air with her forehand grip, like a ground stroke grip. 
And very rarely was she forced to volley from below the net where maybe the continental grip would have come in much more handy. Do you ever make allowances for something like that when you're coaching to say, it's not perfect, but for this player, it fits in with the rest of their game. I'm letting this go. Yes, I think you have to do that. You have to evaluate what would be given up for you to try to change that player and have them go to a more conventional, traditional technique. And the chances of that happening are not tremendous unless the player really wants to themselves and they're willing to put the time and money into it. So I think that you're barking up the wrong tree if this player is very successful with certain things they are feeling well i'm going with that because i want to be successful and i think that a smart pro is going to do exactly what you're implying is that you're going to let some things go here and there because you're looking at a big picture not just you know people as automatons and yes they have to do it right they have to do it with the continental and it's funny you bring that up though bob because I was watching uh, one of the women in the Olympics and I think it might've been in the semis and I don't remember exactly which player it was, but I saw her coming to the net and she had like a semi Eastern forehand grip for her volley. And I said, Oh my God, that's like amazing that she is trying to volley with that grip, but she was making some volleys. And then on a very important point, she hit a volley that right went into the top of the net. And the commentator said, you know, that Eastern forehand grip on her volley really backfired on her in that important moment. And I was saying, <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. You got it. So that's, that's my take on all of that. Well, see, it's the important moments. That's when it shows way back when I played uh, a guy who had just, gotten out of the Big Ten Conference. He was a big, tall guy, big hitter, but his forehand didn't have topspin. It had side spin, and he hit it very close to the top of the net in order to, he was hitting pretty hard in order to keep it in. He couldn't really put much shape on his shots, and I was playing his forehand more, and suddenly I saw, well, I found myself in a position where he won the first set and he was serving at 5-4 in the second set. And that's when he missed two forehands in the top of the net. I <laughs> broke him, and I won six love in the third. He basically lost his mind after that. But the idea was after the match, I said to myself, I knew you were right, man, but it was taking quite a while <laughs> to show <laughs> that this was going to break down. Went right. right to the wire. But yes, um, at certain moments, if you do compromise and you're put in the tough position, your technique can hurt you. And that's why it does pay for us to go over that with our students. So we wanted to touch on one other thing, which was how a coach will help you get ready for the spring and summer by using something called periodization. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Scott? So what has to happen when you have limited time to accomplish certain goals 
is you have to be very organized in terms of allotting certain blocks of time and creating specific goals that are to be worked toward during that time. So you don't say, well, I'm going to work on my forehand return of serve uh, or work on my student's forehand return of serve and then have it go like six to eight weeks of the winter season because that's way too much time to just be working in one area uh, and not moving on. So you want to break it down into uh, time compartments that give you a good chance to do a certain amount of work with the student on a certain area. And then you say, okay, now we're gonna be able to uh, make approach shots and come and work on the approach shot and into the volley and overhead scenario. And then start to get some time on improving all of that. And you may be able to, if you have the whole winter, get like four periods of time where you can identify certain goals that you have with the student in their game. Again, my big thing is people need to work on their weaknesses and not on their strengths only because they wanna go out and hit the ball and get it over the net and get it in every time. So I see people in a drill in the backhand cross court, just drilling. Where are they standing? They're almost standing on the other court so that every ball that comes to them is a forehand. And I said, <laughs> how is your backhand ever going to like, you know, ha ha have more confidence with that shot and practice it if you're standing over there? And they're like, oh, okay, okay. And then I have them come over and then I do drills that you say, I say, all you, all you can do is hit a backhand. Do not hit a forehand. Run around and hit a backhand and forcing them into it. So the periodization is a great way of getting the time organized, organized so that you can get the most out of whatever time that you have over the period of a winter, getting ready to perform in the spring and the summer because you have team matches and tournaments and club tournaments and USTA tournaments much more frequent in the outdoor season. Yes, yeah, so Scott, I, I agree completely about having blocks where you introduce something and you do it for a few weeks in a row. People aren't going to catch on typically right away the first time you try something. It takes that repetition to really sink in. But it also involves periodization to me as you get closer to the competitive match season switching from drills to playing more competitive practice sets where you're actually keeping score and serve and return, which are key shots in the game and how you're using them. And that should be happening relatively infrequently, let's say at the start of a season as you're trying to improve different parts of your game. But as we look to integrate any changes into the total package, more and more practice sh sets should be played right before the start of the season. Absolutely, because you're not just training your body and how you make your shots and how you move and everything. You have to train your mind to be what a lot of people say is match tough. You can begin to get some of that mental toughness going by 
doing exactly what you said, Bob, start playing sets because everybody is competitive. As soon as you say, okay, we're keeping score. Everybody seems to be like totally, you know, into like, well, I want to win, which is, which is good. You should want to win and you should want to play to win every time you are involved in, in something that's being measured and keeping score. So that whole mental process by which you begin to learn how to focus better in some of the more important parts of the game or the set. And you can also begin to use information like what we talked about in another podcast, playing to the score. How do you play to the score if you're just drilling and everything? You need to play and you can play games. You can play games to 21 and you can still play to the score. You can, as long as you're playing points or games that you're counting, you can use that and it will make you mentally tough. Then it also gives the coach a chance to analyze and say, you guys were up 15 to 11 in this game to 21. And you made seven unforced errors to finish the points at that point. Where did you guys go mentally? What did you start thinking about? What do you think is going to happen if you start thinking about all kinds of things or you think, oh, it's 15 to 11, we've got this match in the bag. So you're absolutely right. You have to create these scenarios that start to put some significance on performance in different parts of you know, the game. Yeah, so Scott, we're we're at the end here because I want to keep that one promise. We're We're even running a little bit longer than I thought, uh, but I just want to close by suggesting to all of our listeners, if they're competitive club players, give yourself a plan this indoor season. Give yourself a task, something new that you want to learn to add to your game. You'll love playing so much more in the spring and summer once you arrive there with some new skill. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Bob. That was awesome. See you next time. See you next time.